1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
2: Welcome to the Saixin Syndicate Business Brief brought to you by Sub China. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Saixin. China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast.
0: And I'm Ada Shen
2: in Paris. First, I'll look at the week's news. A full-blown trade war with the United States will bring, quote, substantial impacts, unquote, to the Chinese economy, dragging down growth for 15 manufacturing-related sectors, a senior policy advisor warned last week. If the Trump administration moves ahead with all of its threats, tariffs will cover an annual total of $517 billion in Chinese goods. If that happens, China's GDP growth will slow by 1.5 percentage points, said Wang Yiming, a vice minister of the State Council's Development Research Center, a top government think tank. Wang was previously a deputy head of the National Development and Reform Commission, the government's top economic planning agency. Worries over the trade war and waning confidence in China's growth sent the country's stock markets to near four-year lows last week. In the July through September period, the economy expanded by 6.5%, the slowest since the first quarter of 2009. Authorities have stepped up efforts to restore market confidence, pledging more financial backing to the economy through the private sector.
0: President Xi Jinping declared the Hong Kong zhuhai macau Bridge open at a ceremony in Zhuhai in Guangdong Province. The 34-mile crossing connects the two special administrative regions of Hong Kong and Macau with the Chinese mainland and combines an undersea tunnel with two bridges. Originally slated for a 2016 opening as part of China's Greater Bay Area Plan in southern China, the bridge has faced multiple delays and a large budget overrun. Only buses, taxis and private vehicles with special permits will be allowed to use the crossing, which is expected to cut the time to drive from Hong Kong to Zhuhai to 45 minutes down from the current three hours. A total of 10,000 private cars from Hong Kong and Macau and 1,000 mainland cars will have permits to use the structure for now. The opening of the bridge comes just a month after the official launch of the Guangzhou-Shenzhen-Hong Kong Express rail link, a high-speed rail connection between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Both transport projects are key parts of the plan for integrating the so-called Greater Bay Area, which roughly overlaps with the Pearl River Delta region and includes some of the Chinese mainland's key manufacturing and high-tech hubs. The Greater Bay Area began appearing in central government documents around 2015. Since then, the governments of Guangdong, Hong Kong, and Macau have signed an agreement laying out a plan to jointly develop the region.
2: Online media giant ByteDance has nearly finished a new fundraising round that should total about 3 billion dollars as it seeks a lofty valuation that would make it China's third largest internet company, sources told Caixin. ByteDance has become China's hottest internet company by building off its original junior Toutiao news aggregating app and growing through a series of more recent acquisitions that include the wildly popular short video app TikTok, known locally as Douyin. One of its main focuses in the latest round has been attaining a lofty valuation of $70 billion to $80 billion with no plans for an IPO this year, according to another source. Such a valuation would make ByteDance a distant third among China's internet companies, behind only leaders Alibaba and Tencent, both of which are valued at more than $300 billion. The next most valuable company, publicly traded search leader Baidu, is worth about $65 billion. ByteDance would also be China's second most valuable private equity-backed company, behind only Ant Financial, the financial arm of Alibaba.
0: China has quietly opened its cinemas to more foreign films, with movie imports exceeding the annual official quota for the first time since 2016, a recent report has found. But the trend may not continue amid current Sino-U.S. tensions. The official quota allows 34 foreign titles to be screened in China each year, with foreign studios receiving a 25% share of domestic box office. A separate category allows an additional 30 foreign films to be purchased outright and exhibited by local distributors without giving a box office cut to foreign studios. However, quote, the number of films entering under the quota has actually grown above the quota in recent years, albeit unofficially and for tactical reasons, close quote, said a recent report by information provider IHS Markit. Before 2000, China had allowed in only 10 overseas films, mostly from the U.S. and with filtered content. The quota of 20 profit-sharing titles was approved in 2001 in line with China's entry into the WTO. In 2012, the government increased the quota to 34 films, but that quota officially expired last year and remains the subject of stalled negotiations with Hollywood. Hollywood. The quota for profit sharing films rose to 38 in 2016 when the domestic market experienced a slowdown in box office growth. The recent rise reflects government efforts to drive the market by bringing in more popular titles, the report has said.
2: China's leading hot pot chain, Heidi Law, which debuted its shares in Hong Kong last month, has launched its first smart concept restaurant this weekend with the hopes of resolving one of its biggest branding crises, rat infestation. The new location in eastern Beijing will be equipped with an automated warehouse that operates in temperatures between 32 and 39 degrees Fahrenheit, a condition in which rats and cockroaches can't survive, the company said. Other smart facilities include an intelligent kitchen management system that monitors the entire food preparation and cooking process and the capability to customize hot pot soups that cater to diners' requests. Since last year, food safety problems have plagued the decades-old hot pot chain when undercover reporters exposed rat infestations and staff who handled food with their bare hands in certain outlets in Beijing and as far away as Singapore.
0: Legislators have called for empowering public prosecutors to have the right to exercise oversight, not just over the police and courts, but also over a powerful new anti-graft body. Lawmakers from the Standing National Committee of the National People's Congress suggested that if workers of the powerful National Supervisory Commission or its local branches committed crimes such as abusing suspects during corruption investigations, then prosecutors should be allowed to investigate them. The NSC was established in March, and can investigate suspected crimes of corruption and bribery, abuse of power, dereliction of duty, fraud for personal gain, and waste of state assets. Unlike the Communist Party's in-house anti-graft watchdog, all public employees can be investigated by the Commission, both party members and non-members, and possibly even employees of state-owned enterprises. Many have expressed concern that its broad scope makes it hard for its agents to be held accountable by China's judicial system.
2: U.S. electric car maker Tesla is planning to produce two models in its Shanghai factory, with one of them slated to roll off production lines next year. The factory is ready to manufacture the Model 3 and Model Y cars, according to a document posted by a private assessment firm on the website of the Ministry of Ecology and Environment. The company was commissioned to conduct a feasibility study for the project. Earlier this month, Tesla secured 200 acres of land in a $140 million deal with the Shanghai government, pushing ahead its plan for the company's first overseas gigafactory, Tesla's term for a large vertically integrated electric auto plant. In August, Musk said Tesla will seek to use local debt to fund its Shanghai factory, which the CEO estimated will cost $2 billion for an annual capacity of 250,000 vehicles. Tesla has said its output will eventually double to 500,000.
0: Despite measures to loosen China's family planning policies, experts said that the gender imbalance caused by decades of enforcing birth restrictions will last for years to come. Current policies on people's fertility decisions is weak compared to the 1980s and 1990s, and the economic and social impacts are more pronounced," close quote said the yan deputy director of the China Population and Development Research Center. Far more male children are born in China than female children. The ratio hit a record high of 121 boys to every 100 girls in 2004, but had decreased to 114 boys by 2015. But this is far higher than the normal range between 103 to 107, according to the United Nations Population Fund. The imbalance is a consequence of China's one-child policy, which began in the early 1980s, due to a preference for boys many couples aborted female fetuses. Decades of severely skewed birth ratios led to the country having 60 million more men than women in 2012. There will be an estimated 1.5 times more men of a marriageable age in the country than women by 2030. In 2015, the government announced all married couples would be allowed to have two children. But Leo said that further legislation to fight gender discrimination is necessary, as women are facing difficulty finding employment since the loosening of birth restrictions, as employers are unwilling to hire women who might take maternity leave twice.
2: Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a closer look at what's in the news. First up is Olivia Ryan, new to Caixin Global and joining us for the first time here. Uh, First, I have to tell you, go to subchina.com and search for Olivia Ryan and uh, read her great piece for our Friday song sign-off feature, uh, where she talks about Ode to the Fifth Ring Road, uh, which is a, a song featuring a Xiangsheng artist, and a Taiwanese rapper named MC Hot Dog. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, Olivia, you attended an event put on by uh, an environmental group that's led by a well-known Chinese environmentalist. Uh, The group is called IPE. Can you tell us who they are first?
1: So IPE, it stands for the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. It was started by this guy called Ma Jun in 2006. It's an environmental NGO. It has an environmental database. They started out with this thing called the Blue Map, which tracks water quality and wastewater, air emissions, air quality. You can find that all on their website. And the event I went to yesterday was the release of their annual corporate information transparency index.
2: Okay, so let's get into this report that they issued. Uh, I know that Majin is really big on greening the supply chain. And I suppose that since so much of that supply chain for so many products is in China, uh, this is going to be particularly important for China. So what does the study look at?
1: So the index uh, CITI, it was jointly funded with NDRC. Uh, It covers 15 industries. And basically, it refers to how are companies working in China sourcing their products. Um, So it's looking at public data, which is released by the government or through online monitoring, through uh, recorded complaints, or through third party audits, um, looking at exactly where certain parts of the supply chain come from. But one of the comparisons is sort of when people become vegetarian, they are suddenly aware of this whole industry of where their meat comes from. So when you think about, you know, when you look at your iPhone, like where do all these different parts come from? And of course, for an iPhone, some of those parts are sourced in China. Um, so this index was looking at a bunch of different industries including IT, brewing, shared bicycles, environmental waste and management, retail, leather, textiles. It's, it's a huge now it's a huge report covering so many different industries. And this year they added retail environmental waste. Um, and so they use all of this public data to track how well the companies are doing in developing a green supply chain. Of course, one of the weaknesses is that IPE right now doesn't have the capital to be able to double check all of these numbers. So a lot of it is based on trust. Although, of course, it's not exactly in any company's interest to be lying and then found out later that they're lying about emissions of parts of their supply chain.
2: OK, so who did well and who did poorly
1: so Apple and Dell came in first and second place and they didn't change from previous years. I think Apple has come in first for 5 years now. Apple have placed a really strong emphasis on the environmental friendliness of their supply chain, which is really great. Nike is new and they came in 5th place. Primark, which doesn't even isn't even a brand in China, their supply chain obviously is partly based here and they came in 6th. Then we have things like Samsung, Target, New Balance, they're all in the top sort of 15. The the best Chinese company was Huawei, but they didn't come in until 21.
2: Interesting. So the top 20 are all non-Chinese companies. Uh, So what did IPE say about how this sphere, how this work can be improved?
1: One of the major things is just the culture around the awareness of the green supply chain. The law enforcement, they specifically say, has been much better than in previous years. They've gone up Last year, 1,508 suppliers gave public explanations for certain violations, which is a huge improvement. So the law enforcement is improving, but they can still do more. So they can still require more corporations to disclose their emissions, um, to encourage transparency among the different levels in the supply chain, and also promoting best practices and incentivizing companies to release this data. I mean, Huawei, just that Huawei does, has done so well is great in comparison to Xiaomi. It was reported earlier this year, partially revealed by IPE's work, that Huawei is doing so well is a really great sign because they have a competitive incentive to do that. Because in April, right before Xiaomi's IPO, it was found out that part of their supply chain was dumping acidic water into like a A public water source. And that actually really negatively impacted Xiaomi's IPO. So Huawei have benefited from doing so well now, number 21 on the index in comparison to Xiaomi, which comes in rather a lot lower.
2: Olivia, great that you could join us. Thank you. You're welcome. Next up is Doug Young, Managing Editor of Caixin Global. Doug, our topic today is Malaysia and its reevaluation of some of the deals that the previous Malaysian administration had made. Uh, what's going on?
3: Okay, it's a complicated story, but let's see if I can make it as simple as possible. Basically, this week, Taishin, uh we had an exclusive interview with a man who is going to become Malaysia's prime minister in two years. Uh, and This is part of a deal with their current coalition government. So the, the news is that pretty much since some elections back, I believe, in April or May and, and had this very unexpected result that basically the, the government that had been in power for a long time got suddenly kicked out and replaced by this coalition government and this new coalition government is taking a look at a lot of the deals that the previous government did and saying, hey, these deals may not have been completely above the board. There may have been some bribes, kickbacks. And the bottom line is that they're saying these deals are just way too expensive. Uh, There's about $22 billion worth of deals. Well, guess who most of these deals were with? China. Uh, And this goes to uh, China's current approach to the world, uh, which is under its big Belt and Road program, Uh, And under this program, China basically gives, or not gives, they lend money to these developing countries like Malaysia, and in exchange, Malaysia says, okay, we'll build a high-speed railroad completely constructed or ninety ninety nine 99% constructed by a Chinese company. So basically China's are lending these governments money to build infrastructure using Chinese companies. So, uh, this, this new government got into Malaysia. They started questioning the previous government saying, gee, were these things done under open bidding process? Were there some kickbacks here or there? And at the end of the day, is this the amount of money that we really want to be spending? And this new government said no, so uh, they basically canceled about twenty-two billion dollars in infrastructure projects. And of course, China is not too happy about it. But you know, they can't really tell people how to spend their money. So then, this this guy that we interviewed at Taishin uh, this week uh, is interesting. He he didn't really have much to say about the infrastructure. He said. You know, there's still negotiations going. But what he did say that I thought was quite interesting was that Malaysia still welcomes China investment, but you know they'd really like to see investment in areas that benefit Malaysia. And they specifically mentioned like tech. Uh, one of the areas he mentioned was automation because China's such a big manufacturer. They've put a lot of investment in robotics and and sort of automating a lot of the manufacturing process and stuff like that. And this guy's basically saying, "Hey, you know, if China wants to come and and set up factories with all this cool automation and teach us how to automate manufacturing and uh, you know, maybe teach us some stuff, uh, you know, how to make medicine and and stuff like that, we we welcome this kind of thing. What we don't want is basically China lending us lots of money so China can come and build infrastructure for us and leave us with a massive amount of debt."
2: So Belt and Road is huge and obviously a few deals rescinded or, or derailed isn't going to spell the end of Xi Jinping's signature initiative. But is this having a knock-on effect, perhaps, with other recipients of Chinese infrastructure projects under uh, the auspices of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative?
3: Well, it's it's, it's really interesting. This is the third case of uh, something like this happening. And it's the first case was Sri Lanka, which also had lots of Chinese investment and guess what? The people elected an opposition party into, into power, and the exact same thing happened. The opposition gets in there and says, do we really need this much debt? Do we really need this much infrastructure? And my personal take on this is that one of Belt and Road's biggest foes or biggest obstacles is is democracy. You know, the the, the a lot of these Belt and Road projects are sort of rammed through with these uh, lifetime presidents or or whatnot. And Malaysia is probably the latest case. Another case we see that might be coming up is Pakistan. They just elected a new a new leader, and and you we're hearing some rumblings that they're maybe not so happy about some of this debt that the country is taking on. And I think China would have been the same way at this point in its development. You know, these countries, they want to build the infrastructure themselves. They don't really want to have somebody else come in and, and, you know, build it and put them in all this debt. You know, China has always wanted foreign companies to put technology and cutting edge stuff in there. China was never doing these mass programs, inviting foreign companies to come and build their railroads and, come and you know build their telecom networks and so forth so this probably does augur not so great for belt and road but um you know we'll have to see i think these big changes of government could end up being a bit of a thorn in the side actually we're seeing some of that in in brazil now too could be a a thorn in the side of this this belt and road program
2: well we'll keep an eye out Uh, doug thanks for, for talking to us okay thanks a lot kaiser and that's this week's show thanks for listening the Tyson Seneca Business Brief is powered by SUP China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wufei for the music. Check out the terrific new China Econ Talk podcast, the latest edition to the Seneca Network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SUPChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at SUPChina.com. Take care.